So we're, we're getting back on track with our journey through the Gospel of Luke. And uh, the lectionary reading for the beginning of this week, back on November 1st, actually circles around and goes back to chapter 6. It looks at the beginning of a sermon that Jesus preached called, or what has been called, the Sermon on the Plain. And if you remember, as Jesus was preaching and teaching and healing, he started to face a rough time of opposition. Opposition from the religious leaders. And because of that, Jesus took his disciples and went out to a mountain to pray. To give himself a chance to get away from the press of the crowd and the criticism of the clergy. And he prayed all night. And in today's gospel reading, what they're doing is they're coming back down from the mountain, from that prayer session, and we're going to pick up in Luke chapter 6, verse 17. Could you turn me down just, just a little bit? When they came down from the mountain, the disciples stood with Jesus on a large level area, surrounded by many of his followers and by the crowd. There were people from all over Judea and from Jerusalem and from as far north as the seacoasts of Tyre and Sidon. This is a, a big gathering of people, is the idea I want you to get. But with one notable difference this time. It's a more friendly gathering. Right? There's no adversaries or agitators there to give him a hard time. He's with, with friends and with followers. And that's where he launches into today's teaching. So we're going to continue with verse 20. Then Jesus turned to his disciples and said, God blesses you who are poor, for the kingdom of God is yours. God blesses you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. God blesses you who weep now, for in due time you will laugh. What blessings await you when people hate you and exclude you and mock you and curse you as evil because you follow the Son of Man? When that happens, be happy and, yes, leap for joy, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, their ancestors treated the ancient prophets the same way. But to you who are willing to listen... I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. Do to others as you would like for them to do to you. If you love only those who love you, why should you get credit for that? Even sinners love those that love them. And if you do good only to those who do good to you, why should you get credit? Even sinners do that much. That's quite a way to launch into a sermon, isn't it? And he starts out pretty strong. And without any lead-up or preamble, Jesus jumps right into his point and he says, Blessed are the poor because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that's exactly the opposite of what the world teaches us, isn't it? We're used to hearing it said, more is better, right? But Jesus wants us to understand that the people that you and I may consider as poor are in a better position than those who are affluent and wealthy in part because sometimes wealth can cultivate a spirit of independence, can it? It fosters the idea that I can take care of myself so I don't really have a need for God. Or maybe the attitude of, I've worked really hard for what I have and it's mine and I'm keeping it. Now the flip side of that is the Lord is not saying that you and I need to intentionally seek to be poor. right? We don't have to seek out poverty. But the point is that wherever we are, whether we're rich or whether we're poor, our challenge is how to not allow money control us. Right? So that we have an attitude of stewardship, whether we have a little or whether we have a lot, and to align our priorities with God's priorities so we can share our blessings from him with people that are in need, just like you're going to help us do with the, the kids for Thanksgiving. 
and then invest some of those blessings in ministries that reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ and make an eternal impact, like this church does every week, because if you know it or not, 10% of all of our budget goes automatically to missions. So 10 cents out of every dollar that you give goes automatically to spread the gospel. But, you know, we can only keep doing that if we maintain a light hold on our money and remind ourselves to acknowledge and to celebrate the fact that everything we have is a gift from God. Everything. 1 Timothy 6 tells us, true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. That's good advice, isn't it? And in that same vein, Jesus continues teaching today by telling his disciples that blessed are those that are hungry because they're going to be satisfied. Because we all have a lot of cravings, don't we? Right? And for me, mostly it's junk food. Right? We all want the chocolate bars and the, the French fries and the Korean ribs. Right? All of those things that make you fat and give you high cholesterol and make you unhealthy, right? But instead, we need to develop a hunger for the things of God. Right? The things that give us spiritual health and eternal wholeness. And our appetites need to include a longing to be close with God, both alone when we're in His presence and our daily devotions, but in communal worship like we do together as a family. We need to have a craving for God's Word. We talked about that in Sunday school class today. You know, somebody mentioned to me that, that I don't say very often that you need to be reading your Bibles, right? And I, I kind of just take that for granted. But if you haven't heard me say it before, take these out. You have them at home and read them, right? So that God can speak to us, so he can speak his words of life to us. And we need to have a desire for righteous living. We need to have a desire to put away those things that are just our wants, even when we know that uh, they're opposed to what God wants for us. And we need to have a hunger to share the good news of Jesus Christ with everyone around us. Amen? And you know, because Jesus never left his teaching to the purely theoretical, he gave us some practical advice on how to do that. And so he says to his disciples that they're to love. To love. And to genuinely love other people whether we feel like it or not. And that's not always easy, is it? But the truth is love is not an emotion, love is a choice. But I'll be the first to admit that that's not always an easy choice to make. Because this command that Jesus gives us is not for an easy kind of love. He's not just telling us and reminding us to love someone who loves us back or to love and look up to someone that we esteem. Jesus is challenging the people of his day and us to love our enemies, to pray for those who mistreat us. And whenever I read that, I always feel like, you know, sometimes when I try to tell the kids something and they look at me and go, seriously? Seriously? Right? And we want to say, like, seriously, Jesus? Am I really supposed to love my enemies? Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds almost next to impossible, doesn't it? I mean, how in the world can you love someone who doesn't love you? How in the world can you love someone who wants to do you harm and put you down all the time? How in the world can you be gracious to someone that you'd really never, rather never see again? And the shame of it is that can happen in a family. It can happen on the job. It can happen at school. It could even happen in church. One of my 
favorite boyhood pastors used to always repeat that line of Billy Graham's when he said, if you ever find a perfect church, don't join it because you'll mess it up. <laughs> Have you ever heard that before? Pastor Ross, who uh, preceded me as the associate pastor here, put it a little differently. He told me one time, he said that he advised someone, if, if you really want a perfect church, you have to start your own, go inside, lock the door, and never let anybody else in. <laughs> right? Now, thankfully, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we have been growing together more and more as one big family over this past year, haven't we? But I'm sure there are times when we all get on each other's nerves. There are times when we have... I heard somebody whisper yes. Who's? <laughs> but there are times when we have disagreements or differences of opinion, but at the end of the day, we still love each other. Right? Just like a loving, growing family is supposed to do. But then Jesus comes along and throws a monkey wrench in all of it and tells us not only are we to love those that love us, but we're to love those people that don't love us. And we're just not wired that way, are we? I read a story online about a truck driver who had driven all day and into the night, late, late evening, and he pulled his rig into one of those all-night diners, those all-night truck stops. So he goes in and he sits down at the counter and no sooner had the, the waitress brought him his food than these three tough-looking bikers walk in. And they decide that they're going to give him a really hard time just for the fun of it. And not only do they abuse him verbally, one of them grabs his hamburger off the plate. Another one takes a handful of his french fries. The third guy picks up his coffee and drinks it down. Can you imagine if that happened to you? You were sitting in a diner? Well, the trucker didn't respond the way that you might expect. He didn't get defensive. He didn't get into a fight. In fact, he didn't even say anything. He just picked up his check. He took his money up to the counter, set it down, walked out, leaving the, the waitress and the three bikers to kind of stare at each other in stunned silence. And after about a minute or so, after they're looking at each other, one of the, the bikers broke out laughing and said to the waitress, well, he sure wasn't much of a man, was he? And at that, the waitress just kind of shook her head and pointed out the window, and she said, well, I, I don't know about that, but he sure ain't much of a truck driver because he just ran over three motorcycles in the parking lot. <laughs> that sounds like justice to me, doesn't it? right? <laughs> because when someone wrongs us, our first instinct is to get them back, isn't it? Our first instinct is to make them hurt the way they hurt us. That's the world's answer to being wrong, isn't it? But Jesus commands a different response from his followers. Now, some of you might think, well, I don't have to worry about that because I don't have any enemies. Well, that's good. That's good. But the truth is all of us, no matter who you are, have someone that you've butted heads with at some point, right? That's just one of the unfortunate circumstances of life. Because there are some people who are never, ever going to like us, no matter what you and I do. Right? My dad, he still tells me this. He used to always say to me, Joe, no matter what you do, some people are going to swear by you, and some people are going to swear at you. <laughs> so that's his advice. But if that's true, then the question remains, how are you and I going to respond to people like that? How are we going to respond? And the answer is, Jesus is telling us that we're to follow his advice in today's reading, whether we feel like it or not. And I don't think it's too hard to imagine that Jesus' teaching then was as totally foreign to the people of his day as it seems to us. 
Because, you know, the religious leaders of the day, they were confused by this too. In fact, in Jesus' day, the rabbis taught you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And my guess is that would be pretty easy advice for us to follow, wouldn't it? Right? But you know what? That doesn't take any supernatural power to fulfill it, does it? It only appeals to our flesh. And our thought is if we get back at people, if we hurt them the way they've hurt us, they'll know not to mess with us next time, right? <coughs> Excuse me. Plus, we tend to think that revenge is sweet. That's going to feel really good to get back at someone. But guess what? When you start to do that, you find out that hatred is a horrible tool in lots of ways. It can destroy you physically. You know, anger causes your, your blood pressure and your breathing rate to increase, and it puts stress on your lungs and on your heart and makes you more susceptible to heart attacks and strokes. It can trigger headaches. It can break down your immune system. It can cause you to be more susceptible to all kinds of diseases. And besides that, it can destroy you emotionally. There's that old saying that uh, hanging on to anger and hatred is like drinking poison and then hoping the other person will die. And of course, worse than the physical manifestations, hatred also destroys you spiritually. So we're told throughout the Bible that the essence of God is love. And if you and I are harboring hatred in our hearts, then we're living contrary to God's command, aren't we? Contrary to his command to love each other the way he's loved us. And the result of that is a disconnect from God and a disregard for other people. I'll give you an example. There's a Christian lady who owned two prized chickens that got out of their coop and went through the fence and tore up the garden of one of her really grouchy neighbors. And when the neighbor man saw the chickens tearing up the garden, he was furious. And he runs out and grabs the hens, wrings their neck, and throws them back over the fence to the neighbor lady. Now, as you can imagine, she was pretty upset. But she avoided the urge to get angry. She didn't rush over and scream at the man. Instead, she took those two dead birds, she dressed them out, and made two chicken pot pies. One of which she delivered to the man who had killed her hens. And when she handed them the pie, she apologized for not being more careful about keeping her chickens in her own yard and for destroying his vegetable garden. And you know what? That man was absolutely speechless. Right? What would you say when something like that happened? Because that chicken pie and that apology filled him with such a burning sense of shame for having reacted so harshly, he didn't know what to do. And so he dropped his defenses and they made up as his anger burned out like a glowing ember. And when I read that story, it reminded me of that scripture from Romans 12, 20, when Paul wrote, Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink, for in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Have you ever read that verse before? You know, I've heard that idea of those coals interpreted all different kinds of ways, but in fact, this past Tuesday, I read a commentator that said he was doing some marriage counseling with a couple that were having some pretty serious problems, and during their first session, he said to the wife, now, when you're having an argument, have you tried heaping those coals of fire on your husband's head like the Bible talks about? Without missing a beat, she said, well, no, pastor, but I, uh, I did try a skillet full of hot grease once. Now, I'm pretty sure that's not what the Bible had in mind, though. Right? Now, in my opinion, the best notion that fits that passage of the burning coals is that hot blush of shame when someone that 
we have wronged takes the first step to make up with us. Which is the whole idea of what Jesus continues in this message, and that is bless those who curse you. When you were growing up, did you ever hear that phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me? It's really not true, is it? Because there aren't too many things that carry more power in life than the power of the words that we speak and the way that we speak them to and about each other. The Bible tells us over and over again that there is great power in our speech. But unfortunately, it's all too easy to use our speech in negative ways, isn't it? Rather than positive ways. It's easier to lash out at people and to hurt their feelings rather than to build them up. And when we choose to use our speech to lash out at those that harm us and that hurt our feelings and put us down, all we're doing is throwing gas on a fire. All we're doing is throwing salt in a wound. And you know what happens when you do that, right? You put salt on a wound, it hurts, doesn't it? It stings. You throw gas on a fire, you might get burnt yourself. But there's a better way. Proverbs 51.1 says, A gentle answer deflects anger, but harsh words makes tempers flare. You know, I shared not too long ago in Bible study that I heard a pastor say, you know, if you knew someone who couldn't go 24 hours without an alcoholic drink, you'd think they had a problem, right? And needed help. If you knew a person that couldn't go through 24 hours without an alcoholic drink, you'd say they need help. But what would you think about a person who couldn't make it through 24 hours without belittling or criticizing or running someone down or saying something negative? Would we say that person had a problem? That makes you think, doesn't it? So the next time you see a person that just automatically ticks you off every time you see him, remember that and then take that advice from Jesus in this reading and pray for those who mistreat you. You know, have you discovered in life when there's someone that uh, has upset you that they kind of seem to dominate your thoughts? Have you noticed that? And you practice in your mind what you're going to say when you give them a piece of it? Or or either that or you replay that argument that you've already had and think of all the things that you wish you would have said. Well, Jesus has a great solution for that. Because since he knows that we're going to think of those people, we might as well pray for them. And before you get too excited, he's not about talking about you pray that they get run over by a truck. Okay? (laughs) This is not a prayer of revenge. He's talking about praying for other people that their heart would be changed praying for their redemption and for their own good. Praying for them to come to know the Lord the way that we do. The uh, renowned pastor Charles Spurgeon, who you probably have heard before, who's been called the Prince of Preachers, once said, prayer is the forerunner of mercy. Prayer is the forerunner of mercy. And that's perhaps the reason that Jesus mentions prayer here. Because even though we might experience a person's hatred or their unfairness or their ungodliness and know that there's no possible way we could love them for what they've done, Jesus tells us we have to love them for who they are. Right? Fellow sinners, fallen from the image of God and in need of forgiveness and grace, just like you and I were before we came to God. In need of that undeserved grace. Because God has forgiven us, right? Saved us, blessed us with a relationship with him, even though we don't deserve it. And he expects us to mirror that in our relationships with other people. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the pastor who was eventually killed in Nazi Germany, wrote it on this topic. And I want to just close with a paraphrase of something that he wrote for us to think about as we go to the table together. He said, This is the supreme demand that through the medium of prayer I go to my enemy 
stand by his side and plead for him to God, just as Jesus Christ has done for me. Amen? That's powerful. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you for the gift of faith. We thank you, Lord, for your willingness to, to use us to work out your will in this world in reaching men and women for your kingdom. We thank you, Lord, we know you do that through the preaching of your word and through the right administration of your sacraments. And so, with that in mind, gracious Lord, remembering your mighty acts in Jesus, we take from your creation this bread and this wine. We ask you to pour out your Holy Spirit on us and upon these gifts that this meal may be for us a communion with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.